and welcome to another episode of The Extras. We had our week off last week, but we're back this week. Lachlan here, joined by a special guest this week, uh, here with Susan. Hi, lovely to be on The Extras. I don't know if I feel like a, a special guest. You are a Thank special you. guest. It's a special appearance. Uh, look, we've given Sam a break this week because we've got the Build for Eternity conference this mm. weekend that he's quite heavily involved in organising. Uh, so Susan's graciously accepted my offer to come and join me, uh, mm. talk through the questions from Ezekiel chapter 6. Susan, before we get into that, how's Ezekiel been going for you? Yeah, it's um, it's been heavy, but I've really, really enjoyed spending lots of time both uh, kind of in church and at Bible study just I guess chewing over this part of God's word um, and in particularly like letting it hit home just the weight of sin and mm. God's righteous judgment against it, which it can mm. be easy to shy away from as Christians, mm. but letting um, yeah, letting myself just sit in that for, for weeks um, and kind of come to grips with that I think has been really helpful for me spiritually. Yeah, it's great. It's I love the major prophets. I love the vision of God that they give us and the stark reality of sin. And I'm enjoying hearing it with the weighting that Ezekiel has mm. put to that, or that God has put to that through Ezekiel. Mm. Um, it would be it would have been a much different series to just have a couple of sermons here and then jump through to the great promises at the end. But uh, I think it's been worthwhile slowly stepping through the various pictures of God's judgment here. Definitely. Now, I had a few questions from we Sunday. Do. do you want to get us get yeah. the ball rolling? Um, our first question is, in Ezekiel 6, God lays the land waste because of Israel's sin. So can we use this to speak to today's green movement? Does our sin impact the environment? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, in Ezekiel 6, God's speaking to the mountains, the valleys, bringing a sword against them. Uh, there is some impact to the land. It's interesting in Ezekiel 6, that's not necessarily the emphasis actually it's it's more about the idolatry that's happened throughout the land mm. and so the land will be impacted because all this other destruction is going to happen to things that humans have done on the land mm. but there are other places in the prophets that will talk about the impact of god's judgment on the land and yes you're right at the end of this in verse 14 uh the whole land will be a desolate waste mm. so it does end up getting to that point where even the, the natural environment is destroyed uh i'm interested to know you know from the person who just asked this what what they'd be saying to today's green movement from this uh, it's, <laughs> it's always fun trying to get behind questions and understand what's being asked there but if we take the second part does our sin impact the environment uh i think the testimony of scripture would be yes it does uh even going back to the curse in genesis right mm. so adam and eve sin in genesis 2 God brings the curses, sorry, at the start of Genesis 3, God brings the curses then later on in Genesis 3, one of which for Adam is the ground will no longer be fruitful for it, it'll produce mm. thorns and thistles. Mm. So the nature of the land changes there, yes, in relationship to humanity, but also just generally the land changes. Mm. Uh, so that's part of God's judgment on human sin. Um, one of the other prophets, the prophet Hosea, in chapter 4, draws out for Israel some of that link. So he talks about in Hosea 4, verse 3. Um, verse 2 talks about all of Israel's sin, cursing, lying, murder, stealing. Verse 3, for this reason, the land mourns. 
the wild animals, the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. Mm. So Israel's sin impacts the land and the animals. Um, sometimes that's because of God's judgment on them. Sometimes that's just the natural result of our sin. Mm. We treat the land badly in our greed, and so the land suffers. And I think there's something there from the green movement of today. There's kind of a helpful recognition that perhaps we have been too greedy in our mm. use of the land and that's left a negative impact so yeah there's stuff to say there yeah i think even of of what god commanded israel of you know resting the land every seven years but they really sucked at actually upholding that command you can imagine that having an impact on the land which is you know part of their responsibility to uphold god's commands that they're not doing yeah helpful cool yeah nice um shifting gears a little bit here um we see that God is, you know, I think both you and Sam pointed us back to uh, the punishment that God is sending on Israel here uh, was actually part of the covenant. Mm. Um, you know, we see the covenant curses in Leviticus 26. Um, these are things that uh, God told Israel in advance. Um, in light of that, someone's asked, if God knows everything, including the future, and knows that the Israelites would not follow his commands faithfully forever, why did he set such a harsh punishment in Leviticus, knowing that um, Israel would fail and he mm. would have to um, send that punishment? Why would, why would he make the punishment so extreme if he knew he was going to have to do it one day? Yeah, it's a good thing to ponder. So thank you for asking. And mm. I think... It's, it's not just that we're imagining God knows this future from our broader theology. The, the covenant itself states this. Leviticus states this. Deuteronomy <laughs> states this. Israel's leaders, Joshua and Moses, are both pretty convinced that Israel is not going to hold up their side of the bargain. Yeah. Uh, Deuteronomy has this nice balance at the start and finish, similar to Ezekiel, actually, where at the start God commands Israel to get themselves new hearts and to circumcise their hearts. But then at the end of Deuteronomy, God says, well, actually, I will have to circumcise your hearts. You can't do this yourself. Uh, Ezekiel is kind of the same. At the start, Israel needs a new heart. By the end of Ezekiel, God's giving them that new heart. Mm. So even in the setup of the covenant, uh, there's a recognition that Israel's not going to hold up their side of the bargain. Why then does God do it? Um, really, this is a question, I think, about overarching biblical theology. Why does God do anything between Adam and Eve and Jesus. Uh, Adam and Eve is the point where sin entered the world. Long history of stuff before God then acted in salvation. And I think the answer of the Bible is that all of that build-up is to help us understand Jesus. Hmm. So a passage I come back to on this is Romans chapter 5, where there's a fascinating little sentence, you know, I might be reading too much into it. I don't think I am reading too much into it. Um, Verse 20 of Romans chapter 5. The law came along to multiply the trespass. So Romans 5 is comparing Adam with Christ. Uh, and, And I think it is asking this question, why the time in between? Why, particularly in verse 20, the the language of the law coming along is the law coming in between Adam and Christ. Mm. And law there is picking up the covenant. That's Mm. kind of the same thing. And it came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. 
so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. So I think what that's saying is that, yes, God could have saved people straight away after Adam and Eve and just restored everything right there and then. But he's chosen to work through this extended story of humanity's sin so that we could really understand our heart of sin, so that we could fully understand and appreciate the grace of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. It's a it's a yeah. fascinating little line that I know I'm drawing a lot from, but I think as you follow Paul's logic in Romans, uh, that is what he's suggesting and saying, that in the scheme of God doing all things for his glory, the sin and downfall and punishment of Israel helps us now on this side of Jesus to understand just how sinful we are. Because hmm. Israel started out going, yes, we can do this, we can follow this. They thought they could. They had to be taught from their failure that they couldn't. Yeah. And don't we have to go through that same process as well? We think, yeah. oh, I'm a good person, you know. If we set our minds, I'm gonna not, I'm gonna not lie in the next week. Really? Like, mm. can you can you really live up to that? Oh, I'm gonna treat people well going forward in my life. You might for most of the time, but no, we we can't, we we can't do that. We need to learn that same lesson. We can learn that lesson from Israel's history mm. that as good as our intentions might be, as hopeful as we might be about ourselves, actually there's this heart underneath that's just going to fail and fail and mm. fail. And that deserves God's judgment. So there's one part of the answer. Is that uh, making sense so far? Yeah, definitely. It, the thing that um, just sparked a thought for me as well is even God's punishment to Israel is so helpful for us as we then look to Jesus. Mm. Um, as we see the punishment that the Israelites are under, it helps us go, oh, wow, sin, sin actually is a big deal. Mm. It is really serious. Um, and we can't withstand God's full wrath against it. Mm. And so when Jesus comes in and bears the wrath of God on sin for us, you know, when we look back at Ezekiel, it helps us realize how big what Jesus did is. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And just on this question as well, I think it is worth us just acknowledging that, um, like you said, Israel did sign up to this covenant. God laid the covenant before them, and they said, "Yes, we can do this." Um, they they signed up to this with its agreements, um, and I don't think God re- like regrets punishing Israel with what we might see as a, a harsh punishment. I don't think He regrets the kind of punishment that he said would happen in Leviticus 26 because actually sin is worthy of that punishment. We, we struggle to see it in that light, mm. but it, it is actually worthy of that punishment. It is. Uh, I've tried to draw that out in some different ways across the series. Um, but I'll just pick up in your language before we go there. So mm. God regressing it. Uh, we want to keep in mind God says in Ezekiel and also in Isaiah, he doesn't take delight mm. in carrying this stuff out. He's not sitting up there gleefully going, yes, I get to kill some sinners today. Mm. It grieves him. Um, but, yes, to come back to uh, Israel signing up for this and, and the fairness of it, um, it, it's not that the covenant leads to a worse punishment than Israel would have gotten before the covenant. Does mm, that make sense? Yeah. Uh, Israel was sinful before they entered into this agreement with God. And one of the things I've tried to draw out in Ezekiel is that everything Israel has, has just been the generosity of God. Mm. If you go back before this covenant, they Israel were slaves. Yeah. They were slaves. They've got no land, no nation. They're 
working hard for the Egyptians, being put to the whip, being beaten, you know, that was their life. God's come along in grace and said, hey, I'll give you everything you could ever want or dream mm. and imagine. Uh, just follow me and honour me. So, you know, that, yeah, God's not in this punishment doing something harsh or unfair. He's just taking back the stuff that he'd given them graciously. Mm. And it sounds harsh because that involves death. Uh, but I mentioned in one of the weeks, if you stop paying your power company, uh, if you stop paying the bills, they cut off the power. Mm. We get that. That makes sense. Mm. Uh, if we stop honouring and relating rightly to the God who gives life, then he cuts off life. Mm. That makes sense. Like there's a logic to that. But we, I think, have this built-in sense of entitlement that all the good things in life we have somehow built for ourselves. Mm. Our breath our wealth, our family, you know, we, we take hold of all of that and lay claim to that mm. rather than recognising those things that actually come from God and so he has the right to take them away. Mm. So, yeah, I want to say that in answer to this question. That the punishment seems harsh but it's fair and it's not actually impacted by the covenant per se even though the specifics of it were drawn out in the covenant and then carried out here. The other nations around Israel deserve the same kind of punishment. Mm. We all deserve this kind of punishment since mm. Adam and Eve. Uh, the flood. Think of all the people that got wiped out then. Yeah. You know, that is that is what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death in whatever form that death will take. Mm. Uh, so it's harsh but fair uh, and the covenant is set up as an illustration for us to understand our sin and then the grace of God that mm. he doesn't give us that, you know, he... He's merciful, he's gracious. Mm. We deserve it, but there's another way forward in Christ. Yeah. How good is Jesus? Yeah. Um, I think we've got another question here that's maybe um, connected a little bit with other parts of the passage. Um, in chapter 6, uh, it does have this interesting line in verse 12 that says, He who is far off shall die of pestilence, and he who is near shall fall by the sword, and he who is left and is preserved, shall die of famine. Mm. <laughs> so someone's asked, for the people who are spared, why did God at the end put them to death at famine? Are these people uh, spared in just like a general description? What's what's going on here? Yeah, I puzzled over this in preparation for last Sunday. And to be honest, I'm still a little bit puzzled. Because uh, here's the thing that I think is tricky, right? In verse 8, it talks about this remnant, some survivors... Then you go down a few verses and those who survive die. So it makes me go, so were they left for a short time and then they die now? Is that mm. the flow on of time in this passage? I think it's not that. I think back to Ezekiel's barbershop illustration uh, in chapter 5 where he had to shave his head. <laughs> and there are all sorts of things that happened to the hair that I think represent the different categories here in 6 verse 12 as well. So with his hair, some of it is kind of slashed up by the sword around the city. Uh, some is scattered to the wind and then the sword chases them. Uh, and then some is burnt up in the city as well. So th those are the three categories. Some that die in the city, some that die near to the city, and then some that die far off from the city. But on top of that in chapter 5, there are just a few strands that Ezekiel saves and holds off in his garment, and they represent the remnant there. Mm. 
So I think there's four categories actually there in chapter five. And we've got the same four in chapter six. Those who are kind of far off from the city of Israel, those that have been scattered already that are going to die. Those who are near to the city, uh, they're going to die too. Those who are inside the city, perhaps those who remain and are spared, well, they'll actually die of famine too. So they've been spared to the point that they're now enduring the siege. Mm. but they'll die of famine within the siege. But then earlier on in the chapter, those who are the remnant, they're that fourth category, the few strands of hair that have been tucked away. So that's the way I'm making sense of that. It's, it, it means that, you know, it's not the remnant of verse 8 that are then killed in verse 12. It's a different remnant. Mm. But it is really leaving you with this picture of, such widespread destruction. Yeah, the vast majority of mm. Israel will be done away with, for mm. sure. Look, the next question's an interesting one, Suze. Yeah. Uh, can God do evil? Someone's picked up verse 10 of Ezekiel 6, uh, particularly the ESV translation. They'll know that I am the Lord. I've not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Yeah, because we want to hold up that actually um, God is good mm. and he... Um, he, he does not delight in evil. He, he is not wicked. He doesn't sin like us. He is yeah. perfect. Yeah. So how do we hold this together then? Yeah. You were saying something about James 1 before that you've been yeah. reflecting on. I think you did a, did you do a youth talk on that. Yeah, I was doing a youth talk on James 1 a few weeks ago um, where it talks about the fact that um, it's wrong for us to say God is tempting me um, because actually God cannot be tempted with evil. This is verse 13 of James 1. God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. Mm. So evil holds no attraction for God in the way that so often we can be drawn to evil, um, which I think is, is one little piece of this puzzle. Yeah, yeah, I think that's helpful. It's uh, The word evil is one of those words in the Bible. Sorry, I shouldn't say the word evil. The Hebrew word that sits underneath <laughs> that word, uh, word ra or ra'a, um, can be fun to say. Yeah, that, that's, you know, <sighs> you've got uh, that wrong vibe. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's a word that has a bit of a broad range, uh, and we know that in some English words as well. I wish I could think of a better example, but the only one that comes to mind at the moment, if I start talking about glasses, um, I wonder what comes to mind for you as you listen. Do you start picturing drinking glasses or seeing glasses? The same word, two quite different things, mm. both made of the same material, glass, or at least they once were, and so that's where we've taken the name from. Mm. But words are like that. They have a range of meanings. Uh, and with the Hebrew word ra, it seems like that's the case. There, there's a range that's connected uh, but we hear the word evil and we straight away jump to something of morality mm. and evil as opposed to moral good. And often in the Bible, that's the way it's used. There is a morality judgment on that word. If you do something evil, that's something that's contrary to God's will, something that's deserving of punishment. Mm. As you say, God can't do evil in that sense. He can't go against his own will. Mm. Uh, but he can do evil in the sense of disaster and calamity. And that's where some of the English translations go to recognise the spread of that word. So ESV has 
download that I'm the Lord, I've not said in vain I would do this evil. But other translations, have you got the NIV there? No, sorry, no. I've got ESV as yeah, well. We're all using different ones. Uh, I've got the CSB in front of me. I did not threaten to bring this disaster on them without reason. Um, so there's there's the spread. You get a similar verse in Isaiah 45. This is, I think, an important verse for us. Isaiah 45 verse 7, uh, and this is the NIV. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. Mm. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so you see the contrast there is not so much between moral good and moral evil, but prosperity versus disaster. Mm. Is he bringing life or death? He raises up and tears down. Yeah, yeah. So I think in that sense, God, God is the author of things that bring death and destruction in the world. Mm. He does stand behind calamity. He does stand behind disaster. Uh, and that's something important about his sovereignty over the world that we need to mm. recognise. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk wrestles with this particularly. If you've never read Habakkuk, it's a short prophet, well worth a read. Um, you can pick up, I, I remember reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' little commentary on this when I was at uni, very helpful reflection. Because the prophet Habakkuk, looking at the same situation that Ezekiel's talking to, so Babylon coming up to judge Israel, uh, he says to God, God, what are you doing? How can you do that? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and yet you're going to raise up this wicked nation. Mm. Uh, and the answer that God gives to Habakkuk is, yes, that is what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, so Habakkuk's wrestling with it, but God's answer is, look, I can, I can use their actions to bring about this judgment that's deserved without being complicit in their evil motives and mm. their pride. And so in Habakkuk, God in turn will judge Babylon because they've overstepped their bounds of just being his tool. Uh, they've been more violent than they needed to. They've been arrogant in the way that they've gone about it. So God is the author and sovereign over these things that happen without morally being responsible for something that is against his good revealed moral will does that work yeah similar to kind of the end of genesis when we read um when joseph talks to his brother yeah. and yep. you intended this for evil but god intended yes. this for good there's there's two wills right. at work god is actually intending these things for good he's yeah. still the author yeah behind it but there is people are still doing evil things with their evil uh, desires as yeah well. that's very helpful thanks Suze. Mm. um moving on to the next one uh ooh. which question are we up to Lachlan I think I've just uh, lost which one we are up to how does God's judgment yeah. on Israel reveal his greatness to the surrounding nations doesn't it make him look weak that he can't defend or save them yeah, this was a helpful theme in Ezekiel chapter 6. It come up in Ezekiel 7 as well again. Uh, God acting that people would know that he is Yahweh. Mm. Um, Repeats over, like four times or yeah, five yeah, times yeah. in the chapter. Yeah, lots of repetition there. And I know I took people on Sunday to Ezekiel chapter 36, and I think that's probably where this question's coming from. Because in Ezekiel 36, God fleshes out his concern for his name uh, in verse 20 there, once once Israel is scattered to the nations, they profane God's name. They make God's name common. They drag it through the mud. 
Uh, and the way they do that is that the nations around are saying, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they had to leave his land in exile. Mm. So the nations are drawing a conclusion. Hey, Yahweh's weak. He couldn't protect his people. The gods of Babylon are stronger. Mm. So if that's where this question's coming from, that's great. You've listened well. <laughs> um, but I think the flow of Ezekiel, what God will then do in Ezekiel 36 is rescue Israel back. And that's when the nations will know that he is Yahweh. Mm. So the nations have misinterpreted the judgment, uh, partly as well because of how Israel is behaving amongst the nations. I think it's not just that they've left the land. It's because they're just dodgy people. Mm. So the nations are going, man, these people of Yahweh are pretty trash. Yeah. Um, but God will save them back, bring them back to the land. And once that's happened, the nations will recognize not only that the salvation, but even that initial judgment was Yahweh in his power acting. Mm. So in hindsight, the judgment will not make God look weak, yeah. but reveal his strength and power. I think Yahweh also wants his people to know his greatness. Yes. And and that's part of this judgment, right? It's that's going right. I'm I'm not a god who's going to be okay with you worshiping other gods alongside mm. me. I'm mm. not just one of those other gods that you get to add into mm. your menagerie of gods. Um I'm Yahweh. I'm jealous for my name. Yeah. And so he's displaying his his greatness um to his people in his judgment. Um, which is important too. Yes, the nations are misinterpreting it and he will correct them mm, on that. Mm. Um, but he doesn't want Israel. There's no point in him looking after Israel as they trash him and don't understand yeah, who he is yeah. either. Um, he wants yeah. them to know his greatness. Yeah. Look, it might be worth, we might jump down to a different question uh, flying on from that one because mm. one of the implications I think of this text is the New Testament language of us living for the glory of God. Um, God's concern for his glory, God's concern for his reputation. We're called to have that same concern. But someone's asked, how do we, how do, we do that? Practically, how do we live for God's glory? Uh, what does that look like? Mm. Do you want to get us the ball rolling on that one? Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking of um, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Mm. Whatever you do, uh, whether you eat or drink, uh, do it for the glory of God. Um, I think one of the things we can learn from Israel is that, um, or kind of from the negative example of Israel, what we learn is that part of living for the glory of God is living in the way that he asks us to mm. and honoring him mm. um, in all the things we do. Actually, God has a lot to say about the way we do our everyday actions. Are we doing them lovingly? Are mm. we doing them with patience? And that comes down to um, even the way you conduct yourself in the workplace. Mm. Are you sending really passive aggressive emails to people like actually our faith should touch on that part of our lives um we honor god and we give him glory when we submit every part of our lives to him because we're saying you're king mm. i want to live in the way that uh you've said honors you god mm. tells us that mm. kind of life honors him so i'm gonna be patient with my co-workers, with my kids when they're screaming at me. Mm, um, mm. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be self-controlled. Mm. Um, I'm going to try and have a, you know, not let, let myself go to all my passions but be self-controlled. So I think part of it is just um, in every day letting ourselves be shaped by the fruits of the Spirit is one way that we honour God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good. And I think... Uh, 
I, I remember being struck by this when I was a uni student. Um, I, I don't really listen to music often. I hate headphones. One of those little <laughs> things that people don't know much about me. I just love hearing the real world. Noise cancelling headphones. Oh, I can't stand them. Um, but once, randomly, I was listening to some music as I walked onto the university campus. Hmm. And the song that happened to be playing was Here I Am to Worship. Do you remember that? Is that before Here your time? Yeah. There we go. Oh, yeah. What a bagger. What a bagger. And it just struck me as I walked onto the university campus on the morning for that day of study that that song was actually speaking the truth in that moment. Mm. Like, worship wasn't what I was doing on Sunday when I was at church. It, it was as I came to uni, I was there to worship, to declare the worth of God. Mm. Uh, and so you talk about the ways at work. We do that wherever you are, family mm. setting, uni setting, school. You are there to worship God in the way that you speak, in the way that you act. Um, yeah. You've given some great examples of practically obeying God and the way that that brings him glory. Uh, I think other examples that come to mind are just actually recognising that what you have comes from God, that gives mm. him glory, giving thanks yeah. uh, regularly for all things, um, recognising that he is the one that yeah, has given all of that to us. Uh, but I think it, it does... I'm going to start by saying it's internally... It, it shapes your motives, which will then find opportunity to express themselves. Because if you think about the alternative, whose glory would you seek if not God's? Often we live for our own glory, mm. for our own reputation, and that shapes what we do, what we say. We want to save our face. We want to preserve what people think of it or project and gain a reputation that might not be a reality. Mm. Now, if you switch that and think, no, actually, as I go about my day, I'm less concerned what people think about me and I'm more concerned what they think about God. Mm. And that shift in your heart and your thinking, that's going to flow over in a lot of ways, mm. won't it? When you hear someone speaking badly of Christ, making a joke about him or whatever, mm. if you're concerned for your own reputation, you might shrink back at that point and go, oh, I don't want to be associated with those people that my colleague is joking about. Mm. If you're concerned for Jesus' reputation, you'll hear that and you go, hey, actually, I think you've got something wrong in what you think about Jesus. Mm. Uh, and you might step into that conversation and try to turn it and proclaim who Jesus really is. Mm. Um, so there, there's one other way that I think. But if, if you change the heart, you'll start to see all the opportunities that open up. And it might even come down to big life decisions that you make. Yeah. What career will you pursue? Where will you live? How we, all of that, if you're being driven by the glory of God, how can you go and work in a place where Jesus is not as famous as he deserves to be? And you can make him more famous. Yeah. yeah. Just by living there and representing him and speaking of him, who will you actually share the news of Jesus with? Evangelism flows from seeking the glory of Christ above all else. Mm. I could talk about that for longer. Um, John Piper yeah. does have a helpful little article called How to Drink Orange Juice for the Glory of God. Oh, I love that title. Because yeah, he reflected on this verse, and we talk about this a lot, but actually let's get down to the nitty-gritty. It's breakfast. I'm drinking my OJ. How can I do that for the glory of God? So if you want to think some more mm. than what we've said, uh, go back and check that one out. Yeah, I'm very tempted to look up that article now. Do it. Suze, we're on half an hour, so we should swiftly move towards a close here. <laughs> uh, we've got 
a couple of final questions that I think touch on one of the challenging parts of Sunday, one of the challenging parts of Ezekiel 6, this idea of self-loathing. Mm. Let me read the verse and then we'll discuss this one. Uh, so we've mentioned already in Ezekiel 6, there's this remnant left after God's judgment, a small remnant. And one of the things that will happen for them is that they will remember God, how he was crushed by their promiscuous hearts, their lustful, adulterous hearts, by their lustful eyes that chased after their idols, and they'll loathe themselves because of the evil things they did. And that language of self-loathing, um, well, someone's asked, how do I loathe my sin without loathing myself? You're saying you had a chat on Sunday about that very kind of question. So mm. do you want to get us going with some thoughts here? How do we loathe sin without loathing self? Yeah, I, I actually thought you had some really helpful things to say um, about this on Sunday morning. Um, it's so important to look at what what they are loathing. They'll be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed. That That is what the kind of loathing is directed at. It's oh, I, I hate that I've done these things. Um, it, it's not a general loathing at um, myself as a human made in God's image. Mm. We want to uphold that actually um, God has created us in his image. He's made us each unique and different. Um, that is not what we're called to loathe here um, or, or what the, the example of the Israelites are loathing. Um, it's loathing their sinfulness. Um, I, I do think there is a... Um, it's it is attached to them. It is they mm. loathing mm. themselves for mm. their sin. Mm. I, don't, I don't think it's as simple as we can entirely yeah. break that apart yeah. from the yeah. person. Um, but I think part of it is is kind of asking what is it if if we are experiencing self loathing, is it directed at my sin, um, at my capacity for sin, my temptation mm. to sin, mm. or is it directed more generally against other parts of myself which actually aren't problem here yeah yeah because it is possible isn't it to loathe your physical appearance yeah um to loathe your personality uh or just to generally believe that you're a worthless person not because of your offense to god but because someone else in your life that should have loved you has treated you badly and just kept telling you that you're a horrible person yeah, which um, is horrid it is it is and that's part of the sin of the world that we live in, then I'm thankful God will judge one day. Mm. He, he sees it all. Um, so we're not talking about taking on that voice of someone else who has condemned you, mm. someone else that has said, you, you, you know, in whatever words, you are worthless. Uh, instead of that, it's a recognition that we have grieved God. Mm. And we are dirty at ourselves for having done that. Uh, I, there was so much that I read in anticipation of last Sunday that I couldn't draw out in the sermon. Um, there's a book last year, I think, or two years ago, The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink. He did a worldwide survey. Something like 18,000 people have responded <laughs> talking about their regrets. Um, only about 1% of people say that they never experience regret. About 80% said they it's a some part of their life. And around 23 of that percent uh, were saying that they always feel regret. That's pretty wow. significant. 
So that tells me that some of you who are listening are kind of battling that feeling all the time. Yeah. But he breaks down four types of regret that we might feel. And I found this interesting because he distinguishes relationship regret from moral regret. So relationship regret, when we regret things that have hurt a relationship with someone that we actually care about Mm. and we wish we could take back, we wish we could restore the relationship. Then he talks about moral guilt or moral regret when we have gone against our own values and sense of morals. Um, I processed that as a Christian and went, it doesn't actually really matter what my values and morals are. What matters is God's, Mm. so I should regret going against his. But actually, I think that switches it into relational regret, what we're being called for here, because we should be caring about what God thinks and caring about that relationship and lamenting, regretting, grieving that we have grieved him. Mm. And so moral and relational go together, I think, for the Christian, uh, because it has hurt God, and so therefore that hurts us. We want to come back into that relationship with God. So that's all, I think, in the background of this self-loathing. When we have the self-loathing of our physical appearance or our personality, uh, it can be hard to kind of seek progress there. Um, And and we really just need to hear God's voice saying, no, no, you you are who I made you to be, and that's great. Uh, When it comes to the self-loathing spoken about in Ezekiel 6, uh, there is a way forward for us Mm. that we receive God's forgiveness. Mm. And we actually come to him and go, I come with my tears and my regret and now I recognise you've forgiven me and so I don't have to keep revisiting that same regret over and over and over again. I don't have to keep punishing myself for it because mm. it has been punished. Yeah, Jesus uh, has already taken it. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that was a helpful moment for me. There's sin that I've committed in my past that I lived with the guilt of for a number of years. Um, and I still, as I still think about it now, as I think about what I've done, I still feel a sense of disgust at myself. Mm. Like I go, what I did was hideous and horrible. But, I then recognise that that has been washed away, Mm. that that uncleanness has been washed by Christ. And so I feel the disgust when I think about it, but I'm not thinking about it all the time, Uh, partly because there's new sin to think about. (laughs) Yes, I've now done this more and more. Um, Now, Suze, I feel like I've rambled a bit there. There's the baby brain coming out as we're half an hour in for the discussion. Have we answered the question? How to appropriately loathe sin without loathing self. I think we've said when it comes to ourselves, we need to listen to what God says about us, Mm. that he's made us, he's made us unique um, and made us in his image. So we we actually are valuable people. Mm. Um, But when it comes to sin, we need to recognize that it grieves God. We need to let it grieve us too um, Mm. because of that. Um, But also listen to God when he says um, that when we, repent and turn from it and ask for forgiveness he gives us that forgiveness and mm. he washes us clean mm. we, we need to equally hold on to the promises he gives us there mm. Mm. Uh, and maybe one of our helpful diagnoses is um maybe you are not just loathing your sinfulness but there's a bigger issue of loathing if you can't take hold of that forgiveness and let you know kind of christ take 
mm. that that sin away um, and let go of it. Mm. That's great, Suze. Let me quickly answer the final question and then we'll wrap up. So one last question on this topic of loathing. Someone said, I'm often disappointed at my sin rather than loathing it. How do you maintain a posture of remorseful repentance regularly? I just want to quickly commend to you the prayers of the Puritans. Mm. Uh, I have not read or met anyone that quite hits this as well as I think they do. Um, They've been critiqued for it, but we won't go into that. I think they're valuable to listen and learn from here. Uh, Pick up a copy of the Valley of Vision prayer book or Tim Chester's more recent one, Piercing Heaven, I think he called it, Mm. uh, that details some of these Puritan prayers and flick open to the prayers of confession. Mm. Uh, I think if you want to grow in this, just start praying along some of those things Mm. as part of your habit. Uh, And what they do that I found helpful is just probe into all the areas of life Those prayers have long lists Mm. of the different kinds of sin that we might be committing. And so as you start praying that, you go, oh, right, now I'm getting a fuller sense of what Mm. sin is. So there's one way that I want to commend to you for maintaining that remorseful repentance. Uh, Just start finding some prayers of confession and praying through them Mm. and God will open that up. Um, Actually, now that I'm saying that, I remember a song we used to sing (laughs) that I want to commend as a prayer as well. Uh, I think it was just written by someone in our church, so you won't be able to find the song. But the line was, Hold my sin before my face until I fall in humble weakness and glory in your grace. Mm. Uh, I found that helpful to sing. I find that still now helpful to pray, asking God to show me my sin until I'm humbled and then see his grace. Mm. So you might like to pray that uh, and that God will, God will answer that. Mm. He wants to work this in you by his spirit of conviction. Mm. Suze, do you want to close us with any wise words, words of prophecy, words of testimony? (laughs) Oh, wow, pressure. Uh, No, not particularly. I'm just encouraged seeing people really wrestle with Mm. Ezekiel, wrestling with who God is, how he acts, how we rightly look at sin. Uh, I'm just really encouraged. It seems like God's spirit is at work in bringing up these things in people's hearts Mm. and that's really encouraging to see thanks for joining us this week susan we should do this more often Uh, (laughs) you've been a great special guest appearance Uh, this coming sunday we're moving on to ezekiel chapter seven i'm looking forward to just wrestling with that together as a community as god challenges the hope and trust that we put in wealth Mm. Uh, that's a convicting moment for me and i think for us as a community so we'll see you there for that